Whether I'm turkey hunting, scouting, or glassing for game, I never go into the woods without my Vortex Optics. With their VIP warranty, I can go with confidence because it'll replace any glass damaged in the woods. I dropped my binoculars out of the deer stand last fall, and Vortex got me fixed up and back in the tree in no time. Vortex makes the highest quality and affordable rangefinders, binoculars, and scopes on the market. Y'all check them out at vortexoptics.com. Support for this episode comes from Missouri-based Kuat Racks. For trailblazing rides or Class 4 river drops, Kuat makes racks that help get your gear where you want to be. Their new Class 4 kayak rack locks, folds, and stacks up easily for hauling and stowing your gear. Not to mention, you'll want to keep a Class 4 on the roof at all times because it actually looks good up there. Kuat, because you love your bike and your kayak. Get your next adventure on your vehicle at Kuat, that's K-U-A-T dot com. I made the terrible mistake of typing into Google, what is Ozark cuisine? Almost always the answer is, well, living off the land, gardening, my grandma used to can. I'm like, yeah, these are all examples, Mm -hmm. but what is it? If I said, well, what's Cajun food? You can tell me that. What don't we have? What do we have that no one else has? Those are the questions that really get to the defining of Ozark cuisine. You're listening to the Ozark Podcast. We sit down with men and women from the Ozarks that have a passion for the outdoors. Our aim is to listen, learn, and pass along their knowledge and experiences to help you become a better outdoorsman. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Ozark Podcast. You've got Kyle Veet here on the mic, joined by my buddy Kyle Plunkett. Yes, sir. What's going on? Man, we've been doing some traveling and some good eating, and so we're in St. Louis, Missouri. That's right. We are uh, lucky to be joined by Rob Connolly of Bull Rush in St. Louis. Rob, we actually met at the Squirrel Cook-Off last year. Yeah, we sure did. <laughs> and uh, what a unique event to, to meet at, first off. But, you know, I came into that not knowing what I was going to be getting into, and then Joe Wilson, the founder of the Cookoff, he sits me down right next to you, and what a what a resource to have as as far as someone who knows food, knows about restaurants, and and how you judge and how you score. In my mind, you're like the most qualified judge you could find for a squirrel cookoff, and uh, so I'll just one say welcome to the show, and uh, what does rooted in Ozark cuisine mean to you? Yeah, I, of course I'm going to answer that, but how can we not talk about that squirrel cook-off? Yeah. <laughs> it, it was such a fun event. And, you know, the deep, dark, dirty secret that Joe didn't know is I had never had squirrel before that day. Oh, really? I, I've had a lot of hunted meats, um, but I had never had squirrel. Okay. And here at the restaurant, it's kind of a joke. People who don't have exposure to hunting or uh, even the Ozarks will assume that we do squirrel or uh, raccoon or whatever else. And, mm-hmm. and they just assume we're gaining animals like that from the dumpsters and the alleys here in the city. <laughs> and, and I have to explain to them how we source our ingredients. But I also say, look, that is a part of the Ozarks, uh, but it's not what we're doing here. And, and if for no other reason we don't do it here because of health code violations and it's hard to get <laughs> meats legally and stuff. Sure. Uh, you know, I, I will say that we have done a dinner here and it was, bef- I think it was before that cook-off. And we've all agreed, we, 
will never do it again because it was really pushing the limits of what is legally acceptable. Okay. And by pushing the limits, I mean it was totally illegal. But it, it, it was a blast because um, we, we trapped and hunted everything. So we had uh, our first course was raccoon ragu. Oh. You know, that was delicious. We did uh, possum pie. So it was a fried hand pie with like a chicken pot pie filling, but it was possum. Uh, in French, I don't know if you know this, but a, ve- a beaver is called a castor. Okay. So we did castor al pastor tacos. Oh. And I make my own acorn tortillas I have ever since I lived on the Mexican border. And so we shaved the meat into the tortillas. Uh, we did pigeon pastilla. Pastilla is a Moroccan dessert that normally would have chicken. We did it with pigeon meat. Uh, groundhog pho. Wow. Uh, you know, we, oh it, it was kind of disappointing to serve venison for the entree. It's like, <laughs> well, who cares? <laughs> yeah. We do that all the time. Um, but, you know, I think that meal actually is a really good uh, introduction to not what we do here at the restaurant, but conceptually what we're trying to do and, and how we got to where we are um, to the point that, I mean, we have national certainly and, and also international recognition for what we're doing. Um and that is all very intentional. Um, I, I, when I moved back to town, so I'm born and raised here, uh, but I, I've been away about 18 years, maybe a little more, and I came back for family. Mm-hmm. And um, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do for my next restaurant. My last one was a locavore foraged food restaurant because I was in Apache territory in southern New Mexico, um, and indigenous people train me how to forage year-round because their Apaches weren't migratory. They're pretty stationary. They okay. they move a little for hunting, but it's not like other tribes they will travel quite a bit. And so they taught me how to recognize the same plants in January, uh, May, August, and November. Mm. And um, you really get a connection to the land and the plants. Well, that was the last restaurant, and um, having that connection to the land, which... Uh, really was just an extension of my my childhood and being on the woods. Um, coming here, I was trying to figure out what's next. And so often people say, uh, do what you know and what you love, of course. We should all do that if we can make a living doing it. Uh, but the other thing for me in particular was um, looking at the food of my childhood. Like, food's such an important part of me, so how did I get here? Right. And... Even the quirkiness of why fine dining. I mean, people don't think of Ozarks and fine dining. Yeah, that's traditionally not something that your mind goes straight to. It's no, like, especially when I sit here and say, well, we did a possum pie. You right. Know? <laughs> well, and the Ozarks were traditionally and historically a very poor place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's poor and it's very much about uh, self-sufficiency, uh, living off the land, using every last drop of everything you can, which is a huge part of the restaurant here. We... We call ourselves a zero-waste restaurant because literally food never goes in the trash. Mm. At worst, it'll go into compost. That Compost to us is a failure. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to go down so many paths. <laughs> you're just going to have to wrangle me in to, to get questions answered. But when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, at some point, uh, I, my spouse was doing work with churches in the Ozarks. And I said, you know what? Ask the little old church ladies for the church cookbook. Mm. Maybe there's something there. I didn't mm. know. And I've got this huge stack now of Ozark church cookbooks. 
to be honest, they're all pretty much crap. <laughs> but but, oh, no. but I, I learned a lot about um, how those books came into being. There's a history to it. It's not just random. There are right. actually two companies out of Kansas that were marketing services that led to the creation of these books. And that's why there's uh, duplicated recipes in different churches' books. Hmm. But what's fun about the Ozark books versus maybe up here in St. Louis is every other woman who's named for a recipe is like Eula May and Ella Jean. And I'm like, okay, well, that, you know, there's some Ozarkness happening here. But when I realized that was not the quality that I needed, then I thought, well, my family's all from St. Genevieve since the 1830s. Okay. I thought, well, that could be kind of interesting. Um, but I didn't want to dig into German food. I mean, I love German food. Give me a sausage and a bowl of potatoes, and I'm, I'm good. That's my, my deathbed meal. But I didn't want to do a restaurant based on that. That's sure. in, in 2019, when we opened, that's a little too heavy. I wasn't the one to take on that project. And quite frankly, I don't really uh, sit in my, my German heritage that much anyway. But someone at some point said, you should go down to Springfield to the public library. They have an Ozark cookbook collection. Well, that's interesting. I never thought about an Ozark cookbook collection like that. There right. are books specific to it. But of course there are. There are for every place. Um, but at that point, I wasn't aware of it. And I went, um, and the, these amazing rare cookbooks, I ended up buying every single one of them literally that day before I left <laughs> the library on Amazon or eBay. Nothing cost me more than five bucks. Yeah. Now, some of the listeners will know almost every one of those books was written for tourists. Okay. This is all kind of the, uh, the continuation of Shepherd of the Hills. Okay. Mm. Shepherd of the Hills, everyone has their perspective on it. My understanding of it, as, as I've studied it, is, you know, the dude went down there to convalesce, to, to heal. Uh, he fell in love with this exotic area. But as he was writing these letters back east that ultimately became the book, there are people who read that who had not been to the Ozarks who saw this negative connotation of the barefoot, um, uneducated, what we now call hillbillies. Right. This is the origin of the hillbillies. And so, uh, you know, I, all this does tie together, so stick with me here. Oh, we're, ro- we're rocking with you. <laughs> Fantastic. You're because, doing great. Because I've got years of thinking about why people had never done Ozark cuisine as something held out to be special to the world. I'm not talking about the small-town Ozark restaurants. Of course that's there. So Shepherd of the Hills happens, and we have the the later variations. So old-timers will remember Lil Abner, the cartoon. That's the hillbilly culture that starts with that. Um, Most people will argue Beverly Hillbillies. Um, More modern times, certainly we have... Jason Bateman and the Ozarks, and Winter's Bone. Okay, I say all those because I've done so many presentations down in the Ozarks, and I always start with two questions. First question, give me one positive portrayal of the Ozarks in mass media or pop culture. Mm. And it's silence. People say, oh, well, my cousin. No, no, no. Mass media, pop culture. How does the world perceive us? I have yet to have an answer. Now, some people will astutely say, well, when Anthony Bourdain came down and, uh, you know, that was a fun episode. He almost killed the guy, you know, but it was a fun episode. I don't think I saw that. Where, where did he come to? Um, oh, I don't remember. Somewhere, they, they ended up doing um, 
raccoon hunting and gig fishing. Okay. And on the gig fishing, he had the author of, maybe it was Winter's Bone, I don't know, a famous author, though, who got hit maybe by a tree and almost fell off the, the skid boat or oh something. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it, it, was, it, it was very dramatic, great TV. Um, and I thought it was a fair presentation of the Ozarks. I'm sure people would nitpick it, but compared to everything else I've just listed. Okay, so we have that negative stuff that the world has. And then my second question is, what is Ozark food? Almost always the answer is, well, living off the land, gardening, my grandma used to can. I'm like, yeah, these are all examples, mm -hmm. but what is it? Mm -hmm. Versus right. if I said, well, what's Cajun food? You can tell me that. Yeah. You can tell me how that came into existence, into being. And so as I'm trying to figure out what I want to do, at some point I made the terrible mistake of typing into Google, what is Ozark cuisine? Mm. Now, whoever would say cuisine with Ozark food? <laughs> yeah, to even say that is kind of weird. But I'm a fine dining guy. That's the word that came out of my, well, out of my mouth, into my fingers. And only one thing popped up. And it was an article in Vice.com, I'm guessing from maybe 10 years ago now. And the title is, Why You Don't Know About Ozark Cuisine. Hmm. And it talks about isolationism and racism in the Ozarks. I thought, well... I, yeah, that exists, but that's not the Ozarks. That exists everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so very quickly, I, I realized here's an opportunity to describe the Ozarks to people who don't know the Ozarks. The people right. in the Ozarks know it. And, and you know, then when they come to my restaurant, they're like, well, my grandma's uh, collard greens are better than that. Or she wouldn't even serve collard. She would serve poke. I'm like, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but I'm trying to make a living too. Right. And... I'm trying to, to engage people in a way that they can get the message. If I s sit in a lecture here in St. Louis, which I do from time to time, and I try to explain what Ozark cuisine is, I can see the eyes glaze. Now, it's not because I'm that boring of a speaker, but, you know, just talking is not easy to make that exciting. But if I put a plate of food in front of you and give you a little snippet of information, and it could be about anything. Uh, on our current menu, we're talking about a lot about the Livestock Conservancy and their role in preserving livestock in the country. And because of that, I talk a lot about the specific breeds that were the first ones, as far as we can tell, to be brought into the Ozarks. That's kind of interesting. Right. And it gives people a different perspective because now after 20 minutes of diatribe, I can get to the answer to your question. Um, <laughs> When we try to define what it means to be rooted in Ozark cuisine, I don't want to be literal about it. That's boring. Yeah. Um, I don't want to be stuck in 1820s, although that's where we focus our time. We're, we're essentially pre-1870. There's wiggle room. Okay. Uh, I should say uh, 1790 to 1870. That's... Kind that's, of, that's our sweet spot. Okay, and that's where you're kind of building off of and looking back to to be inspired by dishes. That's right. Okay. And um, we choose that period because I look at what's being eaten in the Ozarks today and in my lifetime, and I try to figure out where that came from. And so when we first opened, people immediately would say, well, what about indigenous people? They've been here for millennia. I'm like, right. yes, they have. But the food we eat today is the 
the merging, the synergy between those indigenous people, the settlers who came into the area, and oftentimes enslaved people that the settlers brought. Those three cultures have their own distinct contributions that come into the mix to become one. Each of those also has subcultures and smaller mm-hmm. split-offs. So, you know, we could talk about the Osage people and we can talk about the Cherokee people. We can talk about the Trail of Tears and, and anyone who is a part of that trail. Uh, with enslaved people, we can talk about people who came up the Mississippi, people who came up the Arkansas, uh, what part of Africa they came from or did they come from the Caribbean if they were later. And then, of course, with settlers, well, I still need to get to Swedenborg, Missouri and find out what that's about, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, because, yes, we have the Germans. Yes, we have the Scots. But we also have the Irish, the French. We, everything's mm-hmm. down there, and they all have contributions. And if we tease out the food with enough uh, diligence, we can see all those. Mm-hmm. That's what's fascinating to me. Because when we go back to that, or, what I call the origin story, which, of course, again, indigenous people were before, but... Right. Um, I think that's a really fascinating way of viewing the culture of the Ozarks. Instead of just saying, today, let's say, well, let's go back. I'm going to say one more thing, and, and, and then I can take a breath and let you <laughs> <laughs> poke me in a different direction. Um, so Springfield Library, uh, the staff there said, well, I think you need to go down to uh, Fayetteville. Mm-hmm. Fayetteville at the university has a rare book collection. In the rare book collection, they have an Ozark section. And in the Ozark section, they have a cookbook set. They also have all that back to the land stuff, which is fascinating to me that I would love to delve into. I just haven't had time. And quite frankly, the bittersweet uh, database is solid. If, if, for people who don't know bittersweet, that's um, that's our the Ozark equivalent to Firefox. Firefly, Firefox, Firefox, which is the Appalachian version of old timers who shared their their wisdom of how to survive back when they homesteaded. Okay. Um, Bittersweet is great because it's a completely digital database. And so if you Google Bittersweet Ozark, it'll, it'll pop right up and you'll find out how people uh, made their pone or how they skinned their deer. Or uh, that's where I really learned how to do... Um, old-timey uh, nixtamalization of corn. Because, you know, we have cal and lime now. We can do it much more scientifically. Right. But, of course, they were using wood ash. Mm-hmm. And which wood was the best and you know, all that stuff. Anyway, so I, I go to Fayetteville, um, look at their cookbooks. Same thing. I buy every single one of them. Nothing cost me more than 10 bucks, and now I'm the world's authority on Ozark cookbooks. <laughs> They're all on the shelf right back there and uh, here in my restaurant. And... Um, there's one book I didn't get. It seems to be the absolute oldest cookbook from the Ozarks, and it's called uh, Chikora's Help for the Housekeeper. Now, this makes sense because all those other books, again, are spinoffs of the tourism industry that goes back to Shepherd of the Hills. Mm-hmm. Chikora precedes all that, and this is some rich lady who had housekeepers and had to teach the housekeepers how to take care of things. There's a whole genre of these books. You can find, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 different ones around the country that's all the same idea. Nothing really earth-shattering was in there, um, but it was. it's good to know, like, what was the first. Right. That archivist, though, said, you need to get over to Little Rock and uh, go to the Butler Center for Arkansas Studies. 
so for people who don't know me, since we haven't even introduced me really, so I have a doctorate. Um, my doctorate's in nothing relevant. It's sports psychology from Purdue. Really? Um, completely different. Completely different. This is my third career cooking. But it makes sense where I got to today because of career one and two. Um, I love research, and I love geeking out on finding historical things. But back in high school, I was bad at history. Did not like it. Why do I need to learn a list of generals and wars and but make it relevant right. and give me culture and food. And yeah, I'm, I'm down for that. About that. And so I go to the Butler Center and in their archive, um, I hope their lead archivist is not listening right now. <laughs> I went during lunch hour, which meant I got the work study student. Uh, okay. This was the best thing that could have happened to me and the worst thing for archivists around the world. Because I went in, I said, hey, I'm a chef. I'm thinking about opening a restaurant. I'm looking at Ozark food. And I think it might be interesting to look at some old documents. And the student went in back and started pulling out boxes. Now, if anyone has been to an archive before, you don't get boxes. You get a page at a time <laughs> on an empty table. You're only allowed a pencil with an eraser. Uh, you, some don't even let you have your cell phone because they're afraid of the flash. Uh, it's all about protecting the documents. Right. I got boxes and I'm just flipping through them. I don't know any better. The work study student was like, well, here's Here everything go. I have. Here you go. By the way, hurry up before the archivist gets back. Yeah. I, I don't think they knew they were doing anything wrong. And I got through three or four boxes and there's one letter in particular. There's a whole bunch of golden gems that I got my hands on, but one in particular. Some dude, 1820, came from Boston, got to the area, writes home to mom. Mom, I'm okay. I killed a deer. I've met the neighbors. I'm going to be fine. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to tell this story, not from the textbook perspective, mm. but the average person, mm -hmm. right. not the famous person. I don't care about them. The average person, like how did they get there? How did they survive what they eat? So, with that as the starting point to the answer to the question, yeah. <laughs> I, I started looking for all this stuff that was that fit that bill. Mm -hmm. Letters, journals, scrapbooks. We, we found family scrapbooks that would cover like 20, per, 20 year period and it's say what they traded with their neighbor, what they pulled out of the garden. Um, there's one, one of my favorites was this recipe. I'm like, what the hell is this? And I, I go through and it's got all these animal and plant products. And, and at some point it says blackening. I'm like, what is this? To my, my chefy mind, I'm like, is that like a Caribbean thing? Because there's a black cake and that basically means burnt sugar. Um, and my, my uh, research of last resort is always throwing things on Facebook. I'm like, hey, anybody know what the heck this is? Just throwing it out <laughs> to the masses, crowdsourcing. Because you know you're going to get 99% just stuff that's like stupid. Garbage. That's yeah. stupid. <laughs> you know, that's, a, that's not the right way of saying that. But so people started responding with things that were not as useful. Mm -hmm. And then someone said, that's shoe polish. I'm like, what shoe polish? Really? <laughs> they had a recipe for shoe polish. Well, of course they did. Yeah, they would have had to made it somehow. They weren't buying it yet. Right. So all these little gems. Now, people have this misconception that we have all these recipes. We, we, have a, we do have a bunch of recipes. I forwarded a link to you, and I share it with the world. It's a Google Doc. Anyone yeah. can look at it. And uh, it's, it's the summary. It's not even the summary. It's the, uh, the 
gathering of all my research in one document. And it's broken up by uh, important people, important websites, important books and recipes. Same with my bibliography. I shared these, these freely because people shared them with me. And so in there, there's a bunch of recipes and I've made all of them. There's a lot of um, chow chow, a lot of cornbread, a lot of fruit cake, a lot of peach pickle, uh, a lot of the standard stuff that we would expect in the Ozarks. And yeah. it all depends on what part of the Ozarks I was in, whether Springfield or, or the Boot Hill of Missouri. Um, and none of those are recipes I want to make today. I do do a fruit cake every year because it's fun to say, hey, this is a 1864 fruit cake. And I can stay pretty true to it. But our cooking knowledge has changed. It's not just... When they say a slow heat, they mean 325 mm. Mm. or sour milk, buttermilk. You know, it's not just those translations. Those are pretty easy. Um, it's our ovens are different. Our mm -hmm. stoves are different. Our, our um, ingredients are different. The flour that they talk about is not the flour we talk about. Um, Indian, Indian meal, which is, of course is cornmeal. There's just a lot of uh, stuff in those translations and transliterations of the recipes. So here's the answer in 30 <laughs> seconds. Wow, I wore myself out on that. <laughs> when we say rooted in Ozark cuisine, I say don't be literal. Mm -hmm. We're taking these inspirations and creating food that contemporary, modern people want to eat. Mm -hmm. Right. And to do that, my techniques are a little bit different than what you would expect. Sometimes my ingredients are a little bit different. But the root is there. The core is there. What I say to my staff every time I have a new kitchen person, I say, look, if you only focus on the past, no one wants to spend that money here. We can't compete against grandma. If you go so far out to the future that you disconnect from the past, then we're no different than any other new American restaurant. Mm -hmm. right. you know? just, a, just like a diner. Yeah, there's this, this genre of new American. Everyone's new American. Who cares? The sweet spot and the magic for us and why we've done so well here is we're cooking for a contemporary diet, but always anchor, anchored to the past, mm. always telling mm -hmm. that story. And let me I'll end that answer with this one interaction that was, the, to this day, it's still the best thing anyone's ever said to me. We had a guy uh, come in for his law school graduation. This is the first year we were open. We had only been open two months, he brought grandpa in. Grandpa, lifelong Ozarkian, 92 years old. As soon as the grandson told me who he was, my sous chef and I looked at each other and went, oh shit, <laughs> we're busted. Because we were totally in the fake it till you make it phase. We didn't know what we were doing. We were yeah. trying to figure it out. You're kind of exploring a concept yeah. and, and proving it to yourself along the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We knew the food would be good. That wasn't the question, but to have the concept work. Right. Okay, so we get through our seven or eight courses, and the old guy calls us over, and we're like, here's the comeuppance. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> and, and we walked over, and he said, well, boys, I didn't recognize a single thing you just served me. <laughs> and he paused, and he said, but every course reminded me of my childhood. Mm. Come on. No, you nailed it. Come on. You can't give me a better compliment than that. Yeah. There's a lot of things to know about hunting turkeys in the Ozarks. 
but there's two things I know for sure. One, it's that turkeys have really good eyesight, so your camo matters. Canis makes an incredible turkey camo. It is comfortable, it is breathable, blends into the background like no other. It is the perfect camouflage for those long sits back up against a white oak tree, hearing those hens and gobblers hold up 200 yards away as I'm just waiting for them to come in. The second thing you gotta know is you have to be prepared for anything. Whether it's a tom sneaking up behind you or a rainstorm coming at you out of nowhere, Canis has you covered. From the Nunavut rain jacket to the chamois fleece hoodie to the alpine pant with built-in knee pads, make sure you have Canis on you for this upcoming turkey season. Use our discount code OZARK for 15% off website or in-store, and good luck this turkey season. Sadly, hunting season in the Ozarks has come to an end. But in these hills and haulers, it's always been the off-season where woodsmen dialed in their equipment to get ready for the next hunt. And there is no better time to dial in your shot grouping with some new gear from Umarex. Our friends over at Umarex produce some of the most accurate air-powered rifles in the world, with everything from 22 caliber guns for squirrels and rabbits, 30 calibers for coyotes, bobcats, and coons, all the way up to 50 caliber air rifles that can take down white-tailed deer, feral hogs, and bear. Umarex leads the industry in accuracy and innovation, making some of the best hunting air guns on the market, hands down. Head on over to umarexusa.com and use our discount code Ozark Air for 12% off your entire order and start getting dialed in for your next hunt. Obviously, there's so many directions that we could take this interview from this point well, on. He just gave they, us a roadmap. Yeah. Now it's just probing questions. It's beautiful. I love how you answered that. Should we introduce Chef Conley too? <laughs> With some of the accolades where we're where we're sitting. Yeah. We've mentioned it before, but yeah, go ahead. Okay. So Chef Rob Conley at Bull Rush Restaurant in St. Louis. And you are a four times James Beard uh, Award semifinalist. Yeah, as of this year, it's our fourth fourth award. And, fourth yeah. award. and what is okay. for anyone who doesn't know what that is? What is the James Beard? So the the colloquial uh, saying is it's the Academy Awards or the Oscars of the restaurant industry. It's the okay. highest you can get in the United States. Uh, there are people who talk about Michelin, but Michelin's only in select cities. James Beard is the entire U.S. And so this is um, it's the top honor. And there's three stages, semifinalist, finalist, and winner. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, fingers crossed that this year Ozark Cuisine gets its due and and uh, brings us along for the ride. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a- awesome. Absolutely. So that's the quick intro. Now we can yeah. jump into the, the, the questions. For sure. And and even even still, just on top of that, coming in here, we mentioned it's high end, but it, it's it's not just high end. It's like this is top of the line stuff. It's You're saying, you know, people don't associate Ozark food with high end restaurant. It's exactly what you think when you think fine dining. Mm-hmm. It's introduced to you. You're talking about each dish as it comes out. You're ex- it's intimate. It's intimate. You're explaining it. Very cool experience. We were here last night and got to see it all and um, appreciate you opening up the restaurant to us, but very cool. Um, so what were some of the traditional and historical ways to prepare food, harvest food in that time frame of, you said 1790 to 1870? Is that right? Yeah. I, I, we'd say late 18th, early 19th century. Okay. And I used to say uh, pre-industrial revolution. And okay. the only reason I said that is industrial revolution brought trains. And with trains, we had newspapers from back east. And we saw that in that archival work. All of a sudden, about 1860, 1870, um, I see paper clippings 
in with the archives. I'm like, well, shoot, there goes that purity. Not that it was ever a purity test, but mm -hmm. um, it really got tainted. And uh, things like Boston brown bread. Mm -hmm. Like, okay, well, you know, a lot of recipes for Boston brown bread. Um, but it was only about that 1860, 1870 that it starts inundating. And, and now at that point, well, you know, might as well have seven layers salad and jello jello yeah. salad because it's all the same going right. back to those church cookbooks yeah so i'm curious when you go back to that time frame and you look at like the ways that meals were harvested as far as like wild game and you know hunting and gathering foraging how those were done then and taking that from at a point in time it was all about survival right back then it was you had to go out and get your own food gather hunt whatever it took to eat and make it to the next day. And then at some point along the way, as we industrialized, food became less and less about survival and, and it was, we wanted to make it taste good and there was creativity involved. And maybe that creativity goes all the way back to the very beginning. Just love to hear your take on the way that things were prepared back then and when they started morphing into less about survival, more about like, let's enjoy this food, let's make it taste how we want to and be a little bit creative with it. Yeah, and, and you're asking a question that is really hard to answer because it was survival times. Mm -hmm. And so why would they write about it? Mm. There's a, but there's some windows that show us things. There's the whole genre of books that uh, we don't really use here at the restaurant, but I'm very aware of them. And it's the genre that is like, I was held captive by the Indians for 10 years. Mm. And so it's a settler's perspective on how the indigenous people were living. And there'll be a lot of details about what they were cooking, how they were cooking, because that's an outside observer, you know? Right. Uh, and writing 10 years later, 15 years later. What we see, though, in these letters is never um, specifics. I hunted a deer, I got some fish, you know. Why would they say anything more? They're not writing down recipes. No, we, we really don't see recipes till much later. And even then, um, well, one of the stories I tell at the restaurant is um, corn pone is a great example. So corn pone is just corn mush fried up. Okay. Typically in a skillet, typically with lard, bacon fat, whatever. Is it a cornbread type? Well, so it starts off as just corn mush, cornmeal, water, um, and deep fried. Okay. And it's, it's hard. It's dry. It's not the most exciting thing to eat. But back then, you know, it would have been great. And then uh, I may get the date wrong so someone can write in and say I'm wrong. But um, <laughs> I, I think it was about 1840, 1841, baking powder was released as a commercial product. So not, baking powder had been there, but as the chemical. And then it gets packaged and marketed. As soon as that happens, all of a sudden we see all these recipes that use baking powder. It makes sense if you want to sell baking powder. You got to tell people how to use it. Right. And so all of a sudden we see corn pone kind of fade away. Oh, yes, people still eat it, but not like they used to. Okay. And cornbread comes into existence. Okay. Because we've leavened that corn pone. It's... It's those little details that are the answer to your question because I we see. don't have anything more, more than that. Um, there, that. Back to the land movement, I think, is really important to the answer, though. And, again, I wish I had spent more time on that, but the restaurant, you know, I, I only have so many hours. 
but there, that whole genre of writing, which is about the Back to Landers, these are the um, anti-establishment hippies of the late 60s, early 70s. They were leaving the big cities because of the Vietnam War. Many of them ended up in northern Arkansas, uh, but they spread all over the country, but they wanted to be in rural areas. When they got there, who did they reach out to to find out how to live? The old-timers. And here's why that's fascinating to me. An old-timer in 1970 was very likely born in the 19th century. Right. That's pre-Shepherd of the Hills. Mm. That's pre a lot of technology. And so the wisdom that they're sharing is that original stuff. That's the OG as far as we're able to get. You know, I... I work with the Osage Nation. They have an Office of Historic Preservation, and uh, Dr. Andrea Hunter has been very gracious to share uh, her dissertation with me. So I see what the Osage people were eating back in the 18th century and before, um, but we don't see the details. We don't see how they cooked it. Uh, they probably had a fire and mm -hmm. threw it on the fire. Yeah. Maybe they <laughs> made a pot and threw it in the pot, uh, but we don't get any more detail than that. So... Um, as far as I know, I've not seen any significant... Someone's... Again, I, I live in a world, because I don't do this full-time, the research full-time, I live in a world where people are constantly updating me, which right. is great. Yeah. It's great. I want to be accurate. As far as I know, no one has done the deep research on food in the Ozarks and how it was prepared. Um, and so I'm saying that thinking right now about Cane Hill, Arkansas, uh, <laughs> and that archaeologic dig, and I'm like, oh, wow, I probably need to go back because they probably have a lot more information now than they did when I was there three years ago. Yeah. Well, and I know I was looking through the document you sent me with, um, with some of the cult, uh, historic recipes and, and some of the stories that you had. Uh, and, I, and I noticed in there you mentioned Dr. Blevins a lot, yeah. who, who we just had on and we interviewed talking about the history of the Ozarks. Um, which is just a fascinating topic in itself because the, the main thing that stuck out to me from that interview was the Ozarks is, the concept of the Ozarks is actually a relatively new concept. The place has always been here, yeah. but people didn't start identifying with the Ozark image until really the last like 100 years, which is just a blip in, in history. And so I bring that up because I was looking through your document and you're, you've even gone back in some of your research through a historian's perspective and going through Dr. Blevins' research and his work and trying to pull out what you can, what little bit exists within um, the journals and, and the personal accounts that are in the histor history um, that we have. And um, I, I can see that you're trying to grab from a lot of different places because it isn't really readily available. Well, and Brooks is the, funny you should bring him up because uh, he is the researcher right now. I mean, there, there have been others in the past, obviously, and there's many people who do, but he is the big name right now. Mm -hmm. And so when I reached out to him early on, I asked him about food, and he would send me tidbits here and there. And at one point he said, here's the thing. No one's done this work. He said, I would know because if anyone would have done it, it would have been me. Yeah. <laughs> and he said, I haven't done it. And he, he just sent me all this uh database of notes from his field notes uh, that he just hadn't done anything with because that's not his area of interest. Mm. It's, it's rife for 
someone to jump in and do it. Like, sure, I could do it if I didn't have a restaurant, but right. I can't do that. Yeah. And so, um, you know, hopefully some grad student right mm. now is trying to figure out what their thesis is going to be, and they say this is what it is. For From my perspective, though, because I come from academia, and I have a, a, a tainted perspective, uh, almost a disdain of academia. Well, let, let me answer it. Let me tell you this. So... <laughs> Um, I had this, this doctor, uh, MD doctor in. She was a surgeon, is a surgeon. And at the end of the meal, she said, so how does it feel to know that your research just disappears at the end of every night? Mm. Now, she may have caught me on an off night, but I took that as pretty condescending, whether she intended it that way. And she didn't know my background. She didn't know I have a doctorate. She didn't know I was trying to do truly rigorous academic research. And so I snapped at her, which, <laughs> which it's, it's a prepaid meal, so I, so I guess it's okay. She had already tipped us. Tips included, yeah. And, and I said, well, how does it feel to write for medical journals that no one reads just to build your CV? <laughs> I said, for me, I'm touching people every single night of my life. And this is where I want to go with that is, to me, the concept of citizen scientist is really important. For people who don't know, it's the idea that uh, every one of us can be a scientist. Doesn't mean we're publishing articles, doesn't mean we're doing uh, chemical testing. Or it, The best example that most people know of is the annual bird count. That's citizen science three at its greatest. Random people go out there, we teach them some basics, and they document the birds that comes back to the trained scientists who then do the work. That idea with Ozarks makes so much sense because so few people can answer what is Ozark cuisine, yeah. can give me a positive answer to what, it, give me a positive portrayal of the Ozarks. People don't know this area. And, and, you know, I don't know if you heard yourself, you said the concept is 100 years old. It ties back to Shepherd of the Hills. Yeah. You know, I mean, this, it, all this stuff comes back together. And what's nice about the Ozarks is it's a very defined region. The culture is a little more squishy. Right. And, it, and even as I say, it's a defined region. I know Smithsonian brought in the map this year, even last year. Um, and there are people who will argue Illinois and whatever. But generally, it's a pretty defined mm -hmm. area. It, it's, it would be easy for someone to really dig in deep. And you know the project I've wanted to do, I'm saying this to that grad student who's listening. Yeah. This gets back to all those subcultures that I haven't gotten to, the Swedeborgs. <laughs> what is this? Is every county has a historical society. Man, I would love to do that archive work I did in Little Rock and, and Fayetteville in each county. Mm, each county of the Ozarks. And learn that very oh, specific yeah. Yeah. culture. That would just be, it's like I did the uh, the fried pie tour because I was like, well, I better learn about fried pies on a deeper level. And I did the loop and Eureka Springs and all, whatever. And then I hit the chocolate rolls. Like, what is this? <laughs> Where did you run into those? Oh, I knew you were going to ask that. Uh, <laughs> someone will someone will tell you. It's, it was in north central Arkansas. They do a, a chocolate roll festival. It really ties to one specific woman who did pass away during uh, the first year of COVID or second mm. year of COVID. Okay. 
Um, so I don't know how that town's fared with that since, um, but it's kind of just this soft dough filled with chocolate. Oh, man. Is it special? Is it great? Yeah, to the town it is. Yeah. But to the culture, it's huge. Mm. Not just the tourism culture. Like, that is what that town identifies with. Every town's got that. Mm -hmm. I mean, by town, you're even looking at different histories of people groups moving in, and you have historically German towns and Irish towns and English towns, and as they're going frontier, how, how that looks different as they're moving west. All of that is endlessly fascinating to me as you're, yeah. you're thinking dishes and food and some of the writings, even in some of the research, I was just thinking it's, it's probably hard to track because so many people just passed it on. Yeah. It's so, never actually written down. It's you watch grandma cook and mom yes. cook and dad field dress and then you keep doing it. Let me give you a very clear example of that. Brown bread that I already mentioned. The Boston brown bread. Yeah. You can see in the recipes how that clearly was an oral tradition mm -hmm. that ultimately got written down because we have three categories of ingredients, dry, wet, spice, mm. three ingredients in each. Each of those is the same volume. One cup rye, one cup cornmeal, one cup flour. You can see how easy that would be to remember. And so why would we write that down? Yeah. You know, and there's other examples like that. Uh, I, I also want to mention, though, uh, think about all the gems that are hidden in these towns. I was in um, Shannondale, which is north of Eminence, which is like, that's core, right? That's core Ozark from Missouri. And uh, Shannondale specifically is essentially a church camp, and a, there's a, an office that's like Department of Conservation, I think, or maybe Game and Fish. I, I don't remember, but it's a state office. And um, I was walking through, looking at all their displays and their taxidermy and whatever, and on the wall was an article from who knows when, I'm going to say 1940s, but I, I don't remember, about eel. I'm like, what? Eel. Stop the train. Yeah. Eel. And eel are native to Missouri. And we only don't know about eel in that one, I should say Arkansas too. We don't know about them now because once the dams went up in the rivers the eel can't do their thing. For people who don't know, um, eel, they, are, they start down in the Gulf area and they migrate up. The females migrate up. Hmm. And then the males stay down there just chilling until the ladies come back. <laughs> and it's a big once, girl's trip. Yeah, so, <laughs> so when the dams happen, they couldn't get back up. So there's some eel now, but not like there used to be. It used to be a regular food source. I only know this because of some framed yellowed piece of paper mm. in that government office in Shenandoah, Missouri. Yeah. And so you better believe I put that on the menu as soon as I could. Oh, yeah, you have to. <laughs> yeah, because no one knows that. And there's people right now typing away to your email saying, I knew that. But most people don't know that there's eel. And that's because we don't really have them out there now. And mm -hmm. certainly no one's um, selling them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Food is a big part of, of culture and the way that people identify with who they are and where they come from. And I want to kind of move into the the culture of of the Ozarks and food as it's represented here, at least in people's opinions. Maybe not necessarily your restaurant, but um, when when you think about Ozark cuisine, do you feel like, and I'm asking this question back again to our interview with Dr. Blevins, we had this a big conversation around is the Ozarks in the South? Is it a Southern culture, you know, represented in the different towns and places? And 
my question to you now is kind of tied back to that. Would you consider Ozark cuisine a southern culture of food, or is it more of a Midwestern, or is it a completely unique thing in its own? Yeah. I, it's an unanswerable question, and I can also answer it in 20 different ways. Okay. <laughs> I, I would say, so part of it is what part of the Ozarks, you know? Sure. Um, I find Arkansas to be more southern than the Missouri Ozarks. Um, I don't know about this Kansas and Oklahoma and Illinois stuff. The edges. They're just little blips. No offense to the people living in the blips. (laughs) The other part, though, is I do think it's more Midwest in that it's more pragmatic, sustainable food versus Mm. the South, I think of as more about hospitality, celebration. Not that we don't do that here, but the resources were different here at the origin. And so... I don't know. Uh, you know, everything that I see in the history is about just surviving. Mm-hmm. And when I look at Southern food, that's not it. That's not, that's not what they celebrate. So, you know, my short answer, if I could give one, is it's more Midwest. Is that because in the South you have established ports and, and trade and people and in the West and even Midwest, you have people who are moving West to survive. And so food isn't about hospitality or even a show of wealth or anything like that. It's just, what can I get out of the land immediately to push me on to the next day? Yeah, I I think there's some truth to that because we're the end of the journey, not the beginning of the journey. People aren't coming here to get something. They're coming here to be here. Mm -hmm. And so that's a long-term game. I don't know. I think we're dancing around the same idea, mm-hmm. um, but even more so, I I, I feel like um, people in Arkansas would probably disagree with me. I'm not talking about who's serving more grits. That's not what I'm talking about. Right. <laughs> I'm talking about um, the culture around food. And I do think even in Northern Arkansas, it's still more about sustainability, sustenance, and just living. Mm-hmm. So the culture around food in the Ozarks is more about living. Yeah, I think so. Okay. I think the... Never uh, thought about that before. I hadn't either. Because I, I typically jump to like like kind of what you said, who serves more grits? Who's making the fried chicken? Who's serving collard greens? Um, even like we talked about in the hotel room, like salmon patties. This is like a very Southern dish and there's reasons behind that, which I, I, I want to kind of maybe talk about here in a minute. But yeah, I don't ever think about the way that it's the food is presented and and why and what the meaning behind it is necessarily. I more go to like the the actual, what is the food and how fried is it? It's what you eat before you go hunt or what you eat when you come home from a day of farming to to get through to the next day kind of deal. Yeah. It's energy. It's it's like when I do that fruitcake every year, I love telling people how the recipes are always for 30 pounds of fruitcake. (laughs) Like what? And I, so say, much. and I say, it's not because they have that many friends that they want to give fruitcake to. It's because this is actually energy for the winter. Mm-hmm. Think about when you make the fruitcake. You've got your nuts. You've dried your fruits at this point, mm-hmm. And this is how you're going to preserve them to get through the winter. Yeah, it's so, not just for Christmas celebration. It's not right. to wrap with a bow and yeah. give, them, give a, a one-pound fruitcake to 30 friends. That's it, not what it's about. Is fruitcake, is that a more southern thing, or is that, is that unique to the Ozarks? Uh, no, that's universal. Okay, okay. That's universal. I and, and I don't even see uh, ingredients in those old recipes. I've got a bunch of them. 
for fruitcake. Um, I don't see things that are specific to the Ozarks. Okay. I never see uh, pawpaw worked in, which would make sense because that just becomes mush. Mm-hmm. Um, no one lists black walnut, for example. Um, and to be honest, I don't, I don't know when black walnut, if they're native or if they're introduced. I, I don't even know that. Uh, there's nothing in those recipes that you don't find elsewhere. And in fact, you see things that you can tell were bought at the general store. Right. Mm. You know? Yeah. So the culture around Ozark food is survival at the base. I think so. Doesn't mean we don't celebrate. Totally. But I think it's it's instilled in us. And and to me, that's why I just think about, forget food for a second, the Midwest culture, at least to my family, it's about hard work, mm-hmm. determination, um, you know, pull, your, pull yourself up by the bootstraps. If, if you're going to make it, it's going to be at your own hard work. And maybe that's just my German heritage. I don't know. Yeah. It, and it is funny because you, I mean, I'm sure if we asked someone who was in Little Rock and they were a chef and their family had that background, they may have a different take on it yeah. because they're like, well, I identify more Southern. So it's, that's the, the part about it. Like you said, culturally, the boundaries are a little bit more squishy because everyone has their own experience and their own history where their families come from or what they hold dear and near. So um, it's a very hard question to answer, and yeah. I, I appreciate you taking the attempt to do it for us. Well, I, I think I'm also tainted because I'm looking at the 19th century. Mm-hmm. That's very different than people looking at 2024. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if I go down to, um, let's pick a random city, if I go to Rala, what, how do they identify? I don't know. I, I still think based on the restaurants I've eaten down there, that they would identify as Midwest. Mm-hmm. But then the, the answer becomes more shallow. I think it's, well, we don't serve as much grits down here. Right, right. But I, that's not, to me, that's not the question. Who cares? I mean, I can go to New York City and eat at 10 Southern restaurants. Right. Mm-hmm. I can go up to Chicago, Chicago and do this. You know, it's like, what does it mean to be Southern or Midwestern? Yeah. And no, right. to me, that's a much deeper question. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I was doing something recently and I came across someone saying like, oh, the the salmon patty is a very Southern recipe. And just this all going back to culturally how this all ties in. And I was like, oh, that's kind of weird because like we don't have salmon in the South. Like, Where does that come from? And they were talking about um, back in the Great Depression, it dates back to the Great Depression where the rural South was one of the most affected areas um, of the Great Depression. So people were so poor that their diets were very unbalanced. They could only afford, you know, the ground cornmeal and flour-based dishes and stuff like that. And so people were developing what's called pellagra, which shows up as a skin disease. It's red lesions. It's on your chest and it's on your neck. And it would show on your neck, and that's where the term redneck comes from. And so the government realized that this was based off of a poor diet. And so they started subsidizing uh, canned salmon production in Alaska so that poor people could buy meat and fish and, and balance their diet overall. And so that they could buy, the, back then it was like less than a nickel to buy a can of salmon. And so people were grinding up crackers, adding an egg, and frying it up. And that was the salmon huh. patty. And that's why, we, that's why we have it today. And I, I grew up eating salmon patties and I was like, oh my gosh, like that all makes so much sense and I never knew it. And then it ties back to me for like, that's some of those things are why I identify as Southern or Midwestern and some of the history. So those, I bring that up just to say it's some of those things can kind of open up 
who you are and where you come from if you, if you know those things. So if you were raised on them, does that mean you're not a redneck? <laughs> Maybe so, because I would have had a more balanced diet. That's a good question. Anyways, I just want to get that blip in there, but you were going to ask a much more profound question. No, it's just moving us on to the next chunk. Go for it. <laughs> That's perfect. Move us on. Um, as you've been speaking on the, the history and the culture of the Ozarks and the food and how we get recipes and all that kind of stuff. So I just want to know how you use your research and your understanding of food and the concept of, of how we eat food and process food and find food and all that kind of stuff in, in Bull Rush. Yeah, so when we... When we come up with a new dish, and we do two new courses every single week, so we average 100 courses a year, we don't have recipes, so, you know, here we are at five years, we've got four to 500 recipes that we've made, not recipes, but dishes that we've made. And I've had a few different staff over the years, uh, I've got a pretty stable staff, but still, when they come on new, I have to explain how this works, because mm -hmm. most restaurants, here's the binder, do that recipe. And we just don't have that here. And so what precedes even the concept is our local sourcing. Mm. Nothing is more important to me than supporting local farmers, uh, local 4-H kids, whatever. I, I want the freshest, the best ingredients. And... And you'll see that in all of our dishes, um, even though they may seem goofy. Like last night in dinner, we served a, a chili garlic crisp. That's a very Chinese thing. Mm -hmm. But that was almost exclusively locally sourced. So, okay. So with that framework, when we're ready to do a new dish, um, the first thing we think about is what are the farmers bringing us? Right now, the farmers aren't bringing anything, right? I mean, we're in the dead of winter. Uh, we're not even getting the hardy greens anymore, so no more collards or kale. Um, there's a few things that they've cellared, so there's a few squash and pumpkins still coming in, not many. And so we focus a lot more on our proteins because we can get those year-round. We do more with nuts uh, with our meals, so cornmeal is uh, more prevalent on the current menu. And what I, what I do with my team is I say, okay, uh, here's what the farmers have. Come up with ideas. And I'm not the type of chef who says, here are the dishes we're creating. I do have many ideas that I throw out there, but I want them to do it because I think it makes it a more interesting restaurant. Mm -hmm. And so they'll come back and say, I'm interested in doing this dish. My job as the chef then is to develop the concept to be appropriate for a tasting menu which there's a lot of layers to that, which we don't need to get into, but you know, it has to do with flow of flavors and textures and what, what story are we telling through our food. And then the more important one is, how is this Ozarks? Mm -hmm. we've, we've done pasta a few times, and pasta is a hard sell for me. My guys love making pasta, and they know that I hate serving pasta <laughs> because it's not a strong story in the Ozarks. It doesn't mean pasta doesn't exist in the Ozarks, but when we look at 19th century Ozarks, we don't see pasta at all. Mm. Now, I'm not saying it wasn't there. There's always someone who will write in and say it was. Sure. I never found it in any of my research. And our rule of thumb is if we don't see it from a first-person account being consumed in the 19th century— we don't serve it. 
So when your staff comes to you with a pasta dish, they know that they're they're they, going up against a it's an uphill battle. It's an uphill battle, and uh, we're doing a gnocchi right now. Okay. It's delicious. Like, give me a huge bowl of this gnocchi. <laughs> it's got an apple cider reduction for the sauce. Mm-hmm. The um, the finishing touch, the fanciness of it is we do a smoked, I think it's a persimmon wood smoked cured egg yolk, local chicken eggs, fine. And he said pork. I'm like, okay, I can, I can literally uh, and metaphorically sink my teeth into that. <laughs> and that was good because we had just bought a mule foot hog from a local farmer. We buy mule foot hogs when we when we need lard and um and so we got it and uh, that opened up the stories for me because it allowed me to tell the story of the history of pork in the ozarks again 19th century stuff um so the concept is more important right Mm -hmm. i mean the cooking i've got professionals who work for me he knows how to make a hell of a gnocchi he makes a great sauce. We know how to take care of that pork so it's tender and flavorful and, and well used because we zero waste, so it's all being used. Um, and then he gave me the flair of the egg, which to the customer, they don't even see it, but I know it's in there. Mm-hmm. And that's how we do all of our dishes. Uh, I did a vinegar pie recently, pot liquor vinegar pie. Uh, pot liquor is the liquid off-put from making collard greens and poke salad and whatever. And vinegar pie, of course, is that Depression-era pie where you take vinegar, thicken it up, sweeten it, throw it in a pie shell. Okay. So I wanted to do a pot liquor vinegar pie. We took our pot liquor, turned it to vinegar, and then uh, did that very traditional recipe. Served it with a collard green Pringle. Super cool. Because a Pringle, what's a Pringle? Well, it's just potato starch and liquid dehydrated, and then they would bake it. We fry ours because, you know fried <laughs> and so we did a collard green pringle collard green juice into that potato starch that dish um, was created out of the concept of me wanting to tell the story of why we eat vinegar pies now mm. you can do vinegar pie anytime but historically speaking we do it coming out of winter mm. why because in the fall we canned all that fruit over the winter we ate all that fruit but we kept all the liquid in the jars. And this time of year, we sweeten it, thicken it, throw it in a pie shell, and we have vinegar pie. There are people right now saying, oh, no, 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 apple cider pie, uh, apple cider vinegar. Yes, but in the research that I see, Mm -hmm. that's what was happening that made it special. And part of that is I've never heard of that anywhere else. Because to me, people are like, well, what is Ozark cuisine and Ozark culture? I'm like, Let's talk about what's not. Mm, yeah. That's, that helps define it. Mm-hmm. Same with plants, flora and fauna. I'm like, well, okay, here are the things we have. What don't we have? What do we have that no one else has? Those are the questions that really get to the, the defining of Ozark yeah. history and culture. And so I'm not saying it doesn't happen anywhere else, but I've never seen any other culture, keep the liquid from their canning process, turn that to vinegar, and then throw it in the pie. Man. They dump it. It's waste. Yeah. Now, shoot, if, if modern times, I'm throwing it in a, a cocktail with some whiskey, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but back then, that's maybe they were doing it. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah. yeah Throw, throwing it into a moonshine maybe back then. Yeah. 
Uh, so to me, that's how the dishes come into being. There, there's a kernel that ties to local and seasonal. Mm -hmm. I figure out what the story is, and then the guys are like, what does a modern diner want mm. to eat? Yeah. What are some of those flora and fauna that you would be so amped to find as you're sourcing and foraging and all that kind of stuff kind of by season? Yeah. The, the, um, the golden chalice or whatever was the eel. I've been wanting that for four years, and we finally served it this past year, just a few months ago. Um, and the only way we were able to do it is there's a, an eel farm in Maine. Like, oh, there goes my local, but the story is so damn good. I've got to do it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, as a forager, that's the core of everything I do. I, I live for uh, <laughs> my, my absolute favorite ingredient to forage is cattail. Um, and within the cattail, because the whole thing's edible, the cattail pollen is my absolute number one. Hmm. Really? Oh, yeah. How on earth do you get that and put that into a dish? Well, so <laughs> I am so enamored by cattail pollen and the, the smell of it. It's like a yeasty citrus. Oh. I gather about a quart a year, and I think it was last year, maybe the year before, they kind of blur, but... Um, I took a sample to the Museum of Scentology in Los Angeles because what she's able to do is get a chemical analysis done so you can recreate scents. I'm like, man, I want to have this smell. Like, that could be our signature scent in the bathroom. Or I didn't know, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I just knew that very few people in the universe know that smell, but it's around all of us. Mm. And how cool is that? to introduce people to something that I think is just so special. So I take it to this woman, like her job is scent. You could pick up any, anything and she would break it down and say, well, that's sandalwood and moss and whatever. Wow. And I gave her the jar and she said, I've never smelled anything like that. I did it. Yes. <laughs> I stumped the Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, um, Stumping Ken Jenkins on uh, Jeopardy. Is that his name? I don't watch Jeopardy. But yeah, it's the same idea. It's like, how cool is it that we have this special, unique ingredient? Um, that said, there's hardly any flavor to it. It's, okay. the, it's the scent. And so when I use it, I'm using it in a way that the that bouquet, that smell, wafts off the dish. Uh, okay. I have done cocktails where I put it with the cocktail and it's, uh, I don't know what the scientific word is, but it floats. It, mm. it, it won't ever absorb. And so you'll have this yellow uh, powder on top of your drink, which is kind of annoying and gross on the mouth. So we, it's not something I encourage my staff to do, but you get that smell of yeasty citrus. That's cool. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, when we talk, when we talk flora, I could go on and on and on. I mean, this, this is my world. Mm -hmm. I. Coming back to Missouri, I'm, again, born and raised through high school, so 18 years, and then I moved off, and then I came back, uh, again, just like eight years ago. And I didn't remember Pawpaw when I was a kid. <laughs> How did I miss Pawpaw? Yeah. And, um, of course, Pawpaw is one of my cash crops now, man. I pull in 200 pounds a day when it's in season because I want it to go year-round here at the restaurant. Mm -hmm. um, acorns are one of my biggest things. Uh, I'll put my acorn knowledge up against 
anyone. Yeah. Including Bo Brown down in uh, Springfield area. You know, he's that big forager down there. And, and I only say that because um, acorns are such a cool story. Like, it's everywhere, but we don't eat them. And people are like, oh, they're toxic. They're not toxic. They're, there's that tannic property that needs to be dealt with. And right. then you can eat them. And then they're nutritious and they're everywhere. This year, um, I did a controlled study. Look at me being all geeky scientists. Look at you. It's awesome. Um, Citizen scientists. So I gathered 200 pounds of acorns. That's my quote every year. And I processed them all the same until the point of the leaching, the removing of the uh, the tannins. And then I did a control to make sure there's no cross-contamination in my three samples. So identical amounts, separated, and I did the old school method of uh, boiling on the stovetop, okay. which I don't recommend to people. And this is to remove the tannins? To remove the tannins, okay. to make it palatable. Mm-hmm. I did the second technique, which is the one I teach people, which is the cold water leaching. Uh, cover it with water, put it in the fridge overnight, every morning, change out your water, do that for a week. And then I did what we do here in the restaurant. We have a vacuum chamber sealer, so you're not going to do this at home. But vacuum chamber sealers boil at a lower temperature, so I can get the the benefit of the boil without putting introducing heat into the nut, which has those oils mm. that go rancid. Mm. And so I've got the three, and it's off at the lab right now. The question is, which is the most nutritionally beneficial way of processing mm. the acorns? Oh, cool. It's going to be really cool, and unless their results are, <laughs> are null, it's all the same. They're like, well, it's the exact same thing. And, and then I've wasted $2,000 and all that time. But good study, Rob. Then you'll know. <laughs> but, but then we know. Yeah. But I know that's not going to be the case. Mm-hmm. I know that the hot water one is going to be removing valuable nutrients. The cold water is going to be the better one. My mm-hmm. technique might be as good or better. I don't know yet. With that, if you find that the nutri- nutrients have come out in the boiled water, could you then and would you then take that boiled water and then try to incorporate that into something else? So, yes and no. I mean, no, I wouldn't waste my time on that because that's the tannins. That's what you're trying to get out. Right. But I live for black walnut season. Uh-huh. Uh, not the nut time in June. When they're green. Green. Okay. Because I make Nochino every year. Ooh. And Nochino is a black walnut liqueur done when they're at their peak of greenness right before they start to turn dark and get hard because you have to cut them up, steep them in your liquor. We do a combination of uh, Everclear and 100 proof vodka here. It steeps for uh, 30, well, 60 days more or less, depending on the year. And then it ages until Christmas. Christmas, you taste it adjust it, and I've been doing this for 18 years, and I blend my vintages every year, and it's delicious. Mm. Why do we like it? Because there's that bitterness that comes from green walnuts, black walnuts, but when they're green. Um, And I do think the geek in me would take that water and be like, oh, what if we concentrate it and work, work it into a cocktail as the bittering agent? It, it could be cool. Could. The reality is I'm, I'm dumping that stuff. Yeah. Too much time. Yeah. So you're cutting green walnuts and putting it in Everclear and oh, vodka. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just the outside? Just the kind of the fleshy? The whole thing. You just take it, quarter it, throw it in your thing. I do a five-gallon bucket. Never heard of that. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. No, 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 no. This is like... <laughs> no, you're going to break your heart. Oh, <laughs> no, because this is something that anyone can do. Yeah. 
It's so easy. Just Google Nocino, uh, recipe Nocino. There's a hundred of them out there. Um, they're all good enough. And then after you've done it the first year, you you start to adjust. Yeah. Because most people um, sweeten it later. I sweeten at the beginning. And they're infinitely adjustable. So, um, you know, what sugar are you sweetening with? What spices and herbs are you putting in there? Mine is orange peel, cinnamon stick, black pepper, spice bush. Um, and when I can find local ginger, I'll throw local ginger in. Mm-hmm. But everyone's got their own mix. Right. It's easy. That is so That's cool. cool. Throw it in the closet and forget about it until Christmas and then enjoy it. Yeah. And th- what are you making with the acorns or the acorns, <laughs> as I like to call <laughs> yeah. them? Yeah. Uh, everything. I mean, we serve breads so and- much. Yeah, we, we do breads. Um, on our current menu, I have an acorn financier. Financier is a, it's a muffin, but it's a rich brown butter bread. And because it's financier, it's fancy. And, but it's <laughs> ultimately just a, a muffin. I do acorn shortbread. Uh, we're doing gooey butter cake for our St. Louis crowd here. Mm. That's an acorn flour gooey butter cake. Um, we have an acorn miso creme brulee right now. So we make acorn miso every year. It's one of our favorite um misos uh, we make a bunch of misos and turned it into a creme brulee so it's sweet and salty and umami it's that's been mm. a big hit uh we bring in indigenous chefs from time to time to do guest chefing okay and uh, we brought bradley dry bradley is cherokee and he was the chef for the tv show reservation dogs which is a great show uh, if anyone watched it, he, he loves to tell the story how he made the meat pies on episode one. And he was like, <laughs> I had to make 300 meat pies. Oh, my goodness. And um, so when he came here, he introduced us to a dish called kanucky. And I know there's different pronunciations, so don't write in on that one. We know there are different pronunciations. But to him, it's kanucky. And uh, kanucky is often hickory nut and acorn and then whatever base nuts, so whether it's pecan or whatever. Gotcha. You know the other, I'm going to say one more ingredient because I I, for, I didn't get any this year and I was really bummed. Um, I've had a generous person send me chinkapin chestnuts every year oh. for the past four years mm-hmm. until this year. Yeah. I only get uh, a few cups of it, but boy, do I make it stretch. And it's for me, not to make the case for me getting more, but it's important because I can tell that story of why they disappeared, how they're mm-hmm. coming back, the initiative behind it. Absolutely. And again, doing that through food is a great way of doing it. It is mm-hmm. an excellent way to do it. I'll ask you one last thing, and then I'll let you get back to work because I know you got a lot to do for your crowd tonight. Um, something that a lot of people do in the Ozarks as far as going out and foraging and, and kind of a hero, a celebrity in the foraging world is the morel mushroom. Yeah. People love it, right? It's it's just, it's a craze. People go out there and they try to find these things. For you, I want to ask you, if you can, what is your absolute favorite way to uh, prepare a morel mushroom? <laughs> it's funny because morels are fine, whatever. There are better mushrooms out there. Give, yeah. me, give me a big basket of chanterelles any day. But <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll play your game. Um <laughs> Oh, geez. We've done so many different things. I'm sure you've, I, I'm you're gonna, trying to limit it down from like 100 ways. Yeah, I'm going to tell you, I'm not going to give you anything deep fried, battered, none of that stuff. That's that's rookie hour. <laughs> um, of course, sautéed with butter and garlic is classic, and it's going to be a crowd pleaser, of course. I think my favorite 
and most memorable is we had some late season ones that were getting a little buggy mm-hmm. and we dehydrated um which to me allowed it to concentrate the flavor and then we rehydrated it in a simple syrup 50/50 water sugar ultimately infusing the mushroom with the syrup but then infusing the syrup the syrup then got sent up to the bar to be worked into drinks okay mm. and then we dehydrated the morel again oh my goodness now it's candied okay uh-huh. We took that and worked it into an ice cream, and it was a uh, persimmon fruit ice cream. So no we had the persimmon <laughs> ice cream with the flex of the candied morel. That was pretty cool. Amazing. Oh, I love it. I'm going to have to try that this spring. It's, it's, a, it's a few steps, right? Yeah. The, this is why you go to restaurants instead of people are like, I could do that at home. Yeah, you could, but you, you won't. <laughs> I'm a lot of stuff. Excited for you to explain to your wife why you're dehydrating bear jerky in one month and candied morels in another. And you're like, this is just where we're at now. She'll just have to go with it. She'll just have to go with it. Oh, man. Well, Rob, we, we really appreciate your time, and it's been fun hanging out here and, and learning from you about kind of exploring that idea again around Ozark's culture and cuisine and food and how it ties in making it relevant for the contemporary Ozarks and the people who want to come into a restaurant and pay for this experience. And uh, I'm really appreciative of your time. Any chance I get to tell the story, uh, I I jump on it and it goes back to what I said at the very beginning. I just, I think the Ozarks have been neglected and dismissed and we know academically why that happened. And I think it's uh, it's a shame. And so we're doing our part to tell a more complete story, mm-hmm. a different story that uh, engages the masses because we're doing it mm-hmm. through food. Yeah, absolutely. Are we going to see you at the Squirrel Cook-Off again this September? Uh, if Joe invites me, I absolutely would love to. All right. Awesome. Well, we hope to see you then. Again, we appreciate you for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. To our listeners, if you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure you let us know by leaving a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. And send this to a buddy. Send this to someone you want to make you some candied morels this spring. We'll see you all in the next episode. This podcast is hosted by Kyle V and Kyle Plunkett and produced by Daniel Matthews. For guest recommendations, episode ideas, and general questions, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram or email us at theozarkpodcast at gmail.com. And, of course, we can't forget to thank our good buddy, J.D. Clayton, for providing the amazing music for today's episode. Check out his website to see where he's touring next at jdclaytonofficial.com.